Dear fellow redeemed, we consider especially our gospel reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. And the question that is presented to us, what do you do with doubt? What do you do with doubt? And even that, that question starts your mind thinking, well, there's got to be at least one, more than one possibility, right? If not as an answer, at least in practice, what people do with their doubt. And I'm reminded of um, the old cartoon Peanuts by, by Charles Schultz, remember with Linus and Lucy and all those. And Lucy and her brother are looking out the window and the rain is just pouring down. And Lucy says, gee, it's sure raining a lot. I hope that it doesn't rain so much as to flood the whole world. And then Linus speaks up and he says, well, God in Genesis chapter 19 promised that he would never again send a flood to flood the whole world. And panel number three, Lucy says, whew, <laughs> taking the load off of my mind. And the punchline, the punchline, Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. And so that question, what do you do with doubt? Because here's John the Baptist, John the Baptist who had been instructed from his youth, John the Baptist whom God had provided for, perhaps much in the same way as he provided for Elijah, the first Elijah, John the Baptist, whom we hear ate locusts and wild honey, clothed in camel's hair, and lived as a lifelong Nazarene, Nazarite. John the Baptist, who had pointed to Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and his, his winnowing shovel in it is in his hand, and he is ready to burn up the chaff with fire. John the Baptist, who had been so confident in what God wanted him to say and to do, that even when the Pharisees came up to him from all the towns and all of Jerusalem, he laughed, perhaps scoffed, at the very least pointed. Who warned you, you brood of vipers? You snakes who speak your father's language, why are you here? Are you here just to see the spectacle? And John says, I know you're not coming to, um, to repent. So who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? John the Baptist, who was entirely devoted, even from before his birth, entirely devoted to sharing, proclaiming, and applying that word of God publicly and preparing the way for the Savior, the Messiah. John the Baptist, who had no qualms whatsoever in telling the, the Roman soldiers what to do and telling the tax collectors how they ought to act and what would be a godly response to the faith that God had given to them. John the Baptist, who was so, um, he was a public figure, and he took his call to the public ministry very seriously, even to the point where he spoke to Herod. King Herod, a different Herod from um, the Herod at the time of Jesus. Side note, if you ever look up the family tree of Herod, it kind of does one of these. And you can lose yourself in Wikipedia for about 20 minutes trying to untangle it. So we'll just summarize it by saying King Herod had taken his brother's wife as his own. And John the Baptist spoke to him whether directly or somewhat indirectly, and King Herod just knew about it. 
And John the Baptist, of all people, said, King Herod, you know that's not right. You know that is not according to the way God has designed marriage to work. And that is improper for you. And King Herod, um, perhaps wanting to avoid some sort of public scandal, or for whatever reason, at least wanting to make sure that John the Baptist quieted down, he had John the Baptist thrown in prison. But King Herod wasn't so certain (laughs) So certain as to say, well, let's just chop off his head and get on with life. He just let John sit in prison and thought, well, at least for now, the problem is solved. The scandal is averted and there's not much to worry about. And there John sits. And he thinks. And what do you do with doubt? Because John had been instructed from his youth. And John had had a very clear proclamation of who this Jesus was. And he had this understanding of what Jesus would do. And as we talked about probably two weeks ago, uh, it's possible that John had kind of a telescoped viewpoint of, of the Messiah's work. Where he thought that Christ's first coming uh, to bear sin, to carry sin, and his second coming in judgment would be stacked up immediately one at the other at the same time. Instead of seeing that they were separated by a distance of years. We talked about that about two weeks ago. But whatever the reason, there John sits in prison. And his followers um, have been coming to, to take care of him, to make sure he has enough food, and to make sure that, that he's warm enough. Because, you know, what we know of the prisons at that time, it's not likely that they had Cisco providing food service for all the inmates. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it was Gordon's. Anyway, John is in prison, and he still has these disciples coming to him. And they're talking with him. And the question, what do you do with doubt? Because John had been expecting Jesus to come in judgment. John had been expecting that if I tell what God's word says, if I proclaim what God's truth is, then God will bless that proclamation, and then the kingdom of God will be here at once, and maybe, just maybe, there would be very much less to worry about. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus would set up this, um, this kingdom, the coming kingdom of our Lord, the coming kingdom of our Messiah, and maybe, just maybe, there wouldn't be much more to worry about. But as the days turned into weeks, and we turn the months. John recalls the account of Joseph, who spent over seven years in prison for a crime he did not commit. And John starts to wonder, is this Jesus the one that he said he would be? Then why am I here? What do you do with that? Because John is comparing what he knows about the coming Messiah with what he has experienced in his own life. And he tries to rationalize it. He tries to reason it out. And he tries to find some way to quiet his emotions, to not get too down into despair and despondency. He tries to find some way to understand exactly how, how God's word and how God's word would play out in his life, together with the, the completely unknown and ongoing question. How many more days would he have here in prison, and where would it end? Would he see the light of day again, or would he see somebody walk through the door? And as he sits there, the number of disciples begins to dwindle. 
And John says, all right, I, I need to know. How do you deal with doubt? Maybe you've had that experience, and if not yourself, then certainly a loved one of yours. How do you deal with the questions when, when if all we had was the, the simple, one might even dare say simplistic instruction in our catechism class, and then we grow up and we begin to wonder if that same truth is the exact same answer that we have for questions that are more complex. Is it true and is it possible that the truths we learned in catechism class, simple truths as they may be, are still the answer now? Because the questions we have now are more complex than I dealt with as a sixth or seventh or eighth grade. How do you deal with doubt? When your human reason tries to, tries to put together the puzzle pieces and you can never quite make it fit, that I have a God who loves me, I have a God who promises to be gracious to me, I have a God who has promised to use every bad thing in my life for my own eternal good, but boy, oh boy, he doesn't need to use so many bad things in my life. Trying to rationalize it. And it doesn't take too long before along comes the caboose to the train of emotion that starts to wonder what and why, how, that starts to wonder, um, what exactly is God's care in my life? And why don't I feel differently? And how should I deal with the, the feelings that I have here? Because you put it all into a pot and you start mixing it up and none of it makes sense. And, and the solution that I've seen too many, too many people end at is, well, Pastor Hagen, I'm just taking a break from church. Pastor Hagen, we'd love to bring our, our, our child, our niece, our nephew, our grandchild, whatever the case may be, but um, they don't even know if they're a believer anymore. But don't worry, we saw them praying last week. What do you do with doubt? Because the answer isn't found in human reason. You can't rationalize God out. And as wonderful as the, the natural knowledge of God is, if you look out your window, the natural knowledge of God talking about what we know about God from nature and what we know about God from conscience, that is something that will never, ever explain the ways of God to you and to me. That the natural knowledge of God is never enough for us to, to understand anything of God's goodness, anything of his mercy, anything of his grace. Because the message of this gospel, the message about Jesus, is completely separate from that. And what do you do with doubt when that whole box of emotions is just sitting there? And it almost seems like that's something that Pastor Hagen doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about, at least not specifically. But these are the things that I'm feeling, and these are the questions that I don't have answered, and I'm beginning to wonder if Jesus has the answer at all. I said it. What do you do with doubt? What did John do? As he sits there in prison, John gets the bright idea to, um, as he's hearing the report from these disciples, go ask him, because I need to know. Go ask him, is he the one that we're supposed to expect, or should we look for somebody else? Are you going to be Messiah or not, Jesus, because I'm waiting. <laughs> 
And some, you know, there's a little bit of debate, you know, is John simply trying to pass off the last of his disciples and say, go follow Jesus, stop trying to follow me? Or is John experiencing a crisis of faith and as he's languishing there in prison, wondering where will I see God's glory in my life? And I kind of tend toward the latter, that John actually is, uh, is in distress, you know, just like you or I. He's sitting in prison. He doesn't, he doesn't know when or how it will end. And he has this question of doubt. And it's degraded into despondency, despair. And we know that it'll end in death. And so in dealing with this doubt, in dealing with um, the fact that human reason doesn't have an answer, that human emotions will never line up with what I know from the word of God, he says, go to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't give him an answer. Jesus, um, he, John sends his disciples and says, well, go ask Jesus, are you the one that we should expect or should we look somewhere else? And Jesus doesn't say, yes, I am, or go look somewhere else. It's like a yes, no question, and Jesus says something else entirely. He says, go back and tell John what you see and hear, that the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. That in practical terms, where the Messiah has walked, there's no need for um, the Americans with Disabilities Act. That where the Messiah has walked, there's a stack of white-tipped canes and people who are learning letters by sight for the first time instead of reading by touch. That where the Messiah has walked, there's a stack of hearing aids because they don't need them. And cochlear implants are a thing of the past. That where the Messiah has walked, all the, the walkers and canes and crutches and wheelchairs are just piled up in a junkie. Yeah. And even though it's an aluminum, it's rusted. That where the Messiah has walked, most of all, the good news of the gospel is preached to the poor. That, that even those who have nothing to offer God have heard the message of forgiveness through the Son of Man. And that gives us a clue and an understanding of what do you do with doubt. Because Jesus doesn't just straight up answer him as if to say that, well, of all people, John, does, John deserves a yes-no answer. Um, Jesus holds up John as an example for us to pay attention to, and he directs John back to the clear word of God, back to the promise that God had made to Abraham and the detail that God had added through Isaiah, that Jesus was doing all the things that the Messiah would do in all the time frame that the Messiah would do them. That Jesus is concerned enough for your doubt that he doesn't give John just a simple yes or no answer. He says, dear John and everybody else who is a member of this Christian faith from now until eternity, um, pay attention to how Jesus fulfilled all the promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Isaiah. Pay attention to this word of God, because what do you do with doubt? You take it to Jesus, and he points it back to his word. Because what do you do with doubt? Um, you can even, yes, look back at the small catechism selections that we read on each Sunday and see them not as the simple truths of our faith, as though they are simplistic for a younger age, but now we have moved past that, but rather that we see them as the foundational truths of our faith that get applied in new ways as we approach the, the new questions of each day of our lives.
that, what do you do with doubt? That you take it to Jesus, and sometimes his answer, his answer in his word is not to say, well, here it is. But sometimes his answer is to say, be patient and wait. Like in our reading from James, where Job never got an answer in the book of Job. But sometimes Christian faith just looks like being patient and waiting for God to fulfill his promises. What do you do with doubt? That we don't, uh, don't try to determine somebody's faith on the basis of whether they pray or not. Yes, God answers prayer. God hears the prayer of every, of every believer. But prayer is us talking to God. Where God talks to us is in his word. And what do you do with doubt? You need, to, you need to let God speak. And he's not going to speak in your heart. He's not going to speak in your emotions. He's not going to speak in a beautiful sunset or a rainbow. Um, although each of those things attest to God's creation and to God's beauty in some way. But what you need is this Jesus. That what do you do with doubt? That you take it to Jesus. And his answer to John was that sometimes, more often than not... The Messiah's work is concealed under humility. That sometimes, more often than not, the Messiah's work, even in your life, is the patience and the endurance of showing up every Sunday. And hearing once again that, that our Lord has given you the treasure of heaven and the forgiveness of sins. And hearing once again that our Lord has given to you life and salvation in his body and blood once again. And hearing that this Jesus whose words and whose, whose truth has been so beautifully condensed even in our small catechism that he provides these foundational truths for us to know and to remember so that we may build upon them, that we may take our questions back to the word of God and see, and see for ourselves from experience that yes, this Messiah answers all of my questions too. I mean, I joke with the catechism kids that the answer is either Jesus, and if it's not Jesus, the answer is sin. That's still true. Whether, whether you're 9 years old or 19 or 89 or um, 94, I think is our oldest member right now. That the answer still is, always, ever, will be Jesus. But not in a simplistic way. In a foundational way. And that takes, that takes Christians being willing to devote some thought to this. That takes Christians gathering around the Word of God to discuss this. That takes Christians um, looking at this Word of God and shutting off the television and saying, the world is confusing enough. What I need is some clarity and what I need is some certainty and what I need is a Messiah who answers my doubt. What I need is some guidance for how do, I, how do I raise my children in a world that has never known and has always hated Jesus. What I need is a Messiah who tells me in a, in a way that is clear and unmistakable that I can trust what he says more than what I see with my eyes, think with my brain, or feel with my heart. And kind of to that end, what do you do with doubt? That this Jesus invites you to his supper again. I think that was even the, um, what I put at the bottom of page one, the cover page, um, in that section from the Formula of Concord. That what do you do with doubt? That we confess it, yes, and then we come to the Lord's table 
not because we are perfect and strong on our own, but we come for strengthening of that faith. We come for forgiveness again. Now, what do you do with doubt? You have that doubt forgiven by your Lord, and you have that faith encouraged by your Lord. What do you do with doubt that you talk about your faith with your fellow Christians, that you find a seat at 10.15 a.m. in there, or another time during you know, the six Bible classes we have during the week, that what do you do with doubt that um, at the end of January, on our potluck Sunday at the end of January, um, we're going to have a, a Q&A Sunday. And last time I tried to organize this, I got like three questions. Um, so please, give it some thought. Um, a Q&A Sunday, question and answer Sunday, where there are a lot of things that you probably deal with that Pastor Hagen doesn't talk about very much in sermons. Um, and, and there is a way to even phrase some more challenging things delicately so that we don't exclude children from our sanctuary, as if to say, well, now it's time for mom and dad to learn something about the question we've always had. Especially when we talk about like, issues of, of gender. I'll just leave it at that. But that we'll have a uh, question and answer Sunday. And um, toward, the end of, toward the end of January, on the same Sunday when we'll have one service with a potluck afterward. And the reason for doing so is because we do live in a challenging world where John sent his disciples to Jesus to get an answer from Jesus on how they ought to live and how they ought to deal with their challenging situation. And that's the way it's supposed to work. That John isn't here, but um, Jesus gave you Pastor Hagen instead. <laughs> I can't grow a beard. <laughs> and I just got a haircut. <laughs> but I want to do the same thing by helping us all deal with doubt, to think about these things clearly, so that we see our catechism faith as not simple, not simplistic, but foundational. That we see this Jesus as the answer not only to our scriptural and spiritual questions, but our rational and emotional questions. That we see this Jesus is, um, is valid for every element of your life as well. Not just Sunday mornings, but when you're sitting in your, your home, might not be a prison cell quite like John, but Jesus addresses them just the same. Amen.